Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, opposition leaders, of course, are supposed to oppose, but where Pierre Polyev ever get rid of the big mean that he's got on and the anger? We'll talk about that on the program today. Fatal encounters with police are on the rise here in Canada. We'll give you some of that data and get some response from experts that have been studying this problem for the last couple of months. And the federal government will provide Volkswagen with up to $13 billion in production subsidies for the new EV battery plant in St. Thomas. David Adams, president and CEO of Global Auto Manufacturers, is going to join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to focus on a piece that uh, was written by our next guest uh, about Canadian politics and about the, the the personalities, I guess, Canadian politics. Much has been said and written, of course, about the Prime Minister over the last little while about some of the things that are going on. Uh, but when you start looking at public opinion polls, uh, Pierre Polyev has uh, climbed considerably. Well, the party has anyway. Uh, Canadians seem to have a little bit of a problem trying to embrace Mr. Polyev himself. And... Uh, that may be because of his own doing, quite frankly. Uh, the piece uh, appeared in the Global Mail a couple of days ago. It's entitled, Will Pierre Polyev Ever Move His Message Beyond Anger? Uh, the author, of course, is Lawrence Martin. Lawrence is uh, an author of a number of books, actually a number of books about prime ministers uh, that we'll get to in a second, and also a public affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. Lawrence, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Chatted with you for a while. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks very much. I, I was fascinated by your piece because I think it's a question a lot of Canadians are asking themselves these days. Uh, Pierre Polyev is doing politics a, a much different way than, than we're used to in this country. And, and as you point out in the piece, and as I'm hearing on, on this show uh, almost on a daily basis, a lot of people are uncomfortable with his style as much as anything else. Yeah, he's uh, relentlessly angry. Um, he's always... Uh, tearing down the country and blaming every problem in the country on uh, on the prime minister which you know people uh, people can see through now now opposition leaders of course are supposed to oppose and he and he should be opposing and he should be opposing vigorously like for example on the story yesterday about uh, Trudeau saying behind closed doors that Canada would never reach its 2% defense spending target well and that's a really boneheaded thing to say. You say, you know, it's obvious we're not going to do that. But uh, to have that come out in Washington, well, headlines in the Washington Post is, is really bad, uh, bad thing. But back to uh, Polly F, like, you know, of all the opposition leaders I've ever covered, and that's uh, going back a long way, he's the, he's the most uh, negative of them all. I mean, Brian Mulroney, Bob Stanfield, Joe Clark weren't like that. Stephen Harper could be bitter, but he didn't get into the character assaults that... Uh, Pierre Polyev did, you know, and uh, and David Baker was great too, but he did it with a twinkle in his eye. Um, but this guy it seems, as I say, just uh, just relentlessly negative, blaming the PM on everything, you know, from uh, oh, I don't know, the uh, the drug run on uh, Vancouver streets to our homicide rate uh, to you know. Um, uh, of course, the, uh, the racism in the country. I mean, everything is sort of over the top, and uh, you know, there's a. I think he has to has to switch things up a little bit. I mean, how many times can you cry wolf, and uh, can you keep doing that all the way till the next election? I don't think so. Who's he appealing to, or who's he trying to appeal to? Well, this is the thing with these um, with the, the right wing politicians. Uh, they, uh, they they appeal to their populist base, and 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 they get them riled up, and they feel that if they can get every single member of their populist base out to vote, uh, that would overcome uh, the lack of uh, support they get in the middle. And uh, of course, that's what we that's what we saw with. Uh, 
uh, Donald Trump in uh, 2016, and uh, um, although he doesn't hasn't done very well since then, he still kept his phenomenal support in his base, which is propping him up. Um, you know, um, Poliev isn't uh, isn't Donald Trump, but some of these political tactics have seeped into this country, and uh, and I think he's using them. Yeah, you, you raise an interesting point in the in the piece, though, Lawrence. Uh, is, is this a is this an act? Is this a persona that he's he's developing? Because um, you know, I, I I don't know the man. I've only talked to him once or twice uh, over the last little while. Uh, he's 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 a clever man. He's he's intelligent. He's well educated. Uh, is is this a a, a a cloak that he puts on himself to pretend I'm going to be Pierre, the mean guy on the opposition side? Yeah, I mean, he thinks it's a, a winning formula. So far, the polls showed him not to be very popular. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I, I find him to be smart, talented, very, very articulate guy. I mean, he can string he can string the attack sentences together uh, just so fluently. It's 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 uh, it's very impressive. Uh, one of the things about him, though, Bill, is that you know, and I found this with some career politicians uh, who have you know like. Mr. Poliev, uh, who's lived off uh, government payroll his, almost his entire career, has precious little experience in the in the real world. Uh, the problem with these guys, they've been immersed in political combat, you know, since since day one, and and that's about all that uh, that turns their crank, as I was writing in the column, and and um, they can't think outside the box. They can't think outside the box because they've never been outside the box. So they become these. Uh, these become these cliched politicians who are just uh, attacking one another. That's part of the problem. Uh, but 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 I, you know, I, I think he is purposely lowering lowering his uh, his uh, intellect in uh, in trying to reduce everything to the lowest common denominator appeal and to attack the prime minister uh, on every little thing that happens. I mean, uh, what you know, what do we have now? You know. Uh, um, <clears throat> Inflation went up to eight uh, percent, and uh, according to Mr. Poliev, that was that was all Mr. Trudeau's doing, of course, right? Yeah. Now inflation's down to about four percent. Now is that Mr. Trudeau's doing? Uh, cutting it in half as well? No, I don't think you're going to hear him say that. Probably not. But but in <laughs> in your career, though, I mean, you've as you mentioned, you've touched on a lot of these guys. You've covered these. You've written a couple of books about Jean Chrétien, who had a reputation as as a as a fighter. You know, he but but he never seemed to take it to this level. And as, as you say, historically, uh, I don't know too many people that have. Um, you know. There have been witty politics. Churchill was maybe the best at it, but you know you can go all the way back to Gladstone and John A. Macdonald in this country. They had acerbic comments about each other, but you know it, it, it didn't seem mean spirited. I mean, it, but with Mr. Polyev, I think he's taking it to a different level, hasn't he? Yeah, that's it. And you know, I think Canadians uh, are you know are pretty pretty goodwilled people. I think they want to see some more ennobling uh, characteristics in their politician than just to have them. Mean-spirited attack dogs. Uh, I, I called uh, Mr. Poliev um, in the column. I said he's he's uh, he's the uh, nuttering nabob of negativism. Do you remember where that <laughs> phrase is from? Yeah, Spiro Agnew. I remember that. <laughs> now he was so the Nixon the vice president. Yes, that's right. He was talking about the media. And he came up with this phrase to describe us all because we were always so negative in our approach. Uh, Nattering nabobs of negativism, he called us. Uh, nice alliteration. And, uh, that's, uh, but that's the type of politics that, uh, Mr. Pauly is playing now, you know, and I think he's got to, he's got to bury the script. He's got to, uh, 
you got to show some statesmanlike qualities from time to time, you know, some uh, some more political maturity. I mean, sometimes, you know, like any government cannot do every single thing it does horribly, right? <laughs> That's impossible for any government. So, I mean, every government does maybe even one or two things, right? And I think Mr. Dumas would probably have good to, you know, single, well, you know, we've done okay on that, we've done okay on that. I mean, uh, what... What could you say about Trudeau? I mean, he did get us through the uh, the pandemic better than they did in the United States and Great Britain. He did get us through uh, really rocky times with uh, the hardest president uh, in in the world to deal with uh, in uh, in Donald Trump. Uh, his actions uh, with the convoy were upheld by a uh, tribunal, um, and you know his record. Uh, you can. A lot of a fodder for attack on its record, but uh, you know, there's he's, he's done okay on some files as well. But when you again to go back and uh, you know to his behavior, and he seems to have changed a little bit. I mean, what was it six eight months ago? He didn't want to have anything at all to do with media. Uh, you know, you, me, anybody else, and he just he basically lived on his Twitter account. That was it. Uh, he seems to have changed direction there. I don't know if that's uh, something that somebody told him he had to do or whatever. But uh, as you say, I, I don't know if Canadians are comfortable with that sort of leader. I had a friend of mine who's following politics all his life and he's not a big fan of trudeau by the way i can tell you but he just said after a couple of the, the clips from polyev he said do, do i really want that guy representing my country at, at a g7 meeting or something like that or at a nato meeting uh you know and and i it's interesting but that's almost the canadian attitude isn't it like you know we don't want to ruffle any feathers on the international stage we want somebody who's going to fight for us uh but you know there has to be as you say some sense of statesmanship to it as well well, you know, we we do have to remember that he's representing the uh, the rural community in Canada, right? And uh, and as opposed to the urban elites, who would who like uh, ourselves, I suppose, would like to see the dialogue elevated more and more. Um, but you know, for example, the stuff on the CBC. I mean. You know, okay, you can see this. Say the CBC is uh, liberal, liberal oriented. You can say, and it is government funded, of course. But uh, his whining about media treatment is is way over the top. Because if if you look at, for example, the print media in Canada, it's dominated by the Post newspaper chain, and the uh, and the and the and the Sun newspaper chain. Um, which is virulently anti-Trudeau. Uh, Post media, they employ the most number of political columnists in the country. I mean, this is more of a progressive uh, type of country, but it has, if you look at the number of the political columnists, they, they, they lean right because of their, their owners are, uh, their papers are, are, are right. And in fact, you know, the, uh, the, the in, in terms of uh, government subsidies, uh, Post media has been, uh, government back to the tune of uh, tens of million dollars the last few years itself. So, you know, Mr. Foley, I've just, uh, you know, is not going to talk about those type of things, but uh, for him to complain about getting uh, every day about getting unfair treatment in the media is, uh, is, uh, is, is just not true. Are Canadians as angry as, as Mr. Polyev seems to want to us, uh, us to believe? I, I know we're frustrated. Sorry, Bill, I didn't catch that. I said, I know we're frustrated, but are we as angry as Mr. Polyev wants us to be? Well, um, the problem here is that you really they really divide uh, the country. Eh? And, and you, you saw what happened in the United States uh, uh, with um, Donald Trump. He really exacerbated the divisions. And, 
and the division between uh, left and right. And uh, um, that, 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 that's just, uh, that's just harmful to the country to, 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 to be, for everybody to be so divided and, uh, like that, you know. And uh, I mean, we naturally have the divisions between East and West. Uh, the Liberal Party has never, ever had an appeal to the prairie provinces like in like 60 years they've been shut out. And so we're, we're going to have those divisions, but you don't want to exacerbate them. And, uh, and uh, this uh, swordsmanship we're seeing from the, from the opposition leader is... Uh, I think most Canadians think it's going too far, and I and, and I think he could really up his popularity level uh, quite well if he if he changed his tack a little bit. I mean, uh, the Liberals are very vulnerable. Trudeau's been in power a mm-hmm. long time. There's a lot of fatigue with the Liberals, and if you're an opposition leader and you come in uh, when the other when the governing party's been in power as long as this one has, that's a big advantage in your favor. You should uh, be in good position to win. And but for him to win, I think he has to be more than a, a, a troll king. Exactly. Uh, great piece, as always. Lawrence, great to talk with you again. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, of course uh, from the Globe and Mail, the uh, public affairs columnist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting uh, op-ed piece in, in theconversation.com that I was reading yesterday uh, that talks about, well, a very controversial subject that we've touched on and something that a lot of people are aware of now. Uh, and... Uh, police-involved deaths in Canada. And uh, there has been a great deal of research done on this over the last little while, according to this piece, and uh, the numbers are increasing, and that's troubling. And to find out why, uh, we suggest you read the piece, but I've got one of the authors on right now. Um, Andrew Crosby is with us, uh, one of the co-authors of this piece. He's a postdoctoral fellow, School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Andrew, pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I, I want to get into some of the data here that you guys have, have been able to accumulate and, and comment on here. But I, as I was reading this yesterday, the first question that jumped into my mind is how accessible is some of this data? I mean, you know, you can look at raw numbers here, but is there a story behind the numbers about details about exactly how some of these incidents actually came down? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's not a lot of, of detail uh, or data available. So this is information that uh, different groups of journalists and researchers uh, have really had to dig into uh, to bring to light over the years. So uh, this project really started with uh, using the CBC's Deadly Force uh, database that they compiled mm-hmm. from 2000 till 2017. Then they updated it a couple years later. Uh, so they had a term of team of journalists uh, digging into these these cases going way back, um, and we picked it up uh, and kind of uh, verified, completed all the information. Uh, but the reality is there's not there's just not a whole lot of uh, public information ar- surrounding these deaths. We have, you know, we have some media re- reports, we have some police reports, we have some uh, uh, police watchdog reports, but they don't contain a lot of information. Um, so, yeah, it does take quite a little bit of work to to put everything together. Uh, that's what I was imagining, and because I've seen this, well, just anecdotally, I mean, some of the cases that have happened in this area over the last number of years, and and there's as as you guys mentioned in the piece, there is a, a process that goes through where investigations are done uh, by independent bodies or by police, or uh, there can be a number of different avenues in which they follow. And invariably, it takes an awfully long time, apparently, for these investigations to occur. But when they finally do give us the the, the result of it, oftentimes it's not with much in the way of, of supporting details. They just say, "Here's you know, it's okay or it's not okay or whatever," uh, and and that leaves a lot of people scratching their heads, saying, "Well, you know, how do you get that?" And that's 
it's it's got to be awfully frustrating for folks like yourself that are trying to get to research on this because you know the numbers tell a story, but so do the details. Exactly. Yeah, and I think what this project uh, points to, and what others have been calling for for a long time, is more more accountability, more transparency in policing, um, for for more more information to be released surrounding um, surrounding incidents of, of violence and death. Uh, when force is used, and because we know that uh, police uh, services are collecting this information, but we just don't have we just don't have um, mechanisms for compelling it to be released to the public. So we have you know uh, academic units and civil society organizations and and advocates um, really having to do to do this work. How uh, significant is the increase? We just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that uh, uh, that the numbers are on the rise. Is, is it a significant increase over the last few years? Yes, I would say so. You know, we, we have the numbers going back to 2000, the year 2000. So we have mm-hmm. over 700 uh, uh, police-involved deaths when force is used since the year 2000. And over in the last in the, in the last three years, so. So first, between the year 2000 and 2010, we see, you know, an average of um, a specific average per year of cases when we do that average. It's like uh, 30, maybe 30 some cases. And then we see that increasing for the next 10 or 11 years, an increase of, of, of over 66 percent. And that's some of that explanation can be in the last three years. So the last three years, we've seen a significant uh, increase. So the year 2020, we had 52 uh, recorded deaths the year 2021 up to 57 and the year 2022 uh, up to 69 recorded uh, incidents. So um, yeah, we, we see a, a troubling, a troubling trend here. You've, you've done, you've drilled down and got, as I say, not just the statistics themselves, but some of the details on this too. Uh, Let's let's talk about race, for instance, and and what these numbers tell us about the number of deaths. But the, let's let's break it down by race because there's some interesting stories there too. For sure, yeah. So so our our preliminary findings, we know we're looking at kind of population statistics, and then uh, the race, the identified race of the victim when it's known. So so first, um, we have a lot of unknown cases. So. Uh, we're relying on uh, official bodies to to uh, re- to to report or to not report race. So we have a lot of unknowns because the the, the race of the of the victim is, is often not reported. When it is reported, uh, we see that uh, Black and Indigenous uh, populations are are overrepresented relative to their population size. Um, so, for instance. Um, so indigenous people make up just over 6% of Canada's population, uh, according to the, the most recent uh, census data, um, yet are, are, have experienced 16.2% of the overall deaths. Uh, and black people, uh, uh, people identified as black um, within, within this uh, research um, make up 8.1% of the victims when they comprised um, just 4.3% of the population. So, so those are some of the disparities that, uh, that uh, we've taken from, from doing this work. 
which, by the way, is reflective of of, of prison populations too. Not not you know to the number necessarily, but those sorts of uh, egregious increases, uh, you know, I, I think, are reflected in there too. Uh, and you know that's 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 worthy of further detail and further study. I would imagine to try to you know find out exactly why that's happening the way it is too. So, what do we do with the information that uh, that you and your colleagues have have been able to accrue here? Uh, it's it's rather startling that the numbers are up, and as you say, when you apply this to to gender and to race, uh, that tells yet another story. Uh, can can we use this? Can we uh, extrapolate something from here to suggest that maybe there's a better way that things can be done? Maybe to try to find exactly uh, what's causing these numbers. Yes, well, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, there um, and there there is a lot of research being done on the on the prison uh, system and racial disparities there as well. And I think that. Um, that this speaks to a larger um, issue of kind of systemic injustice within the Canadian criminal justice system, and people have been have been pointing uh, this out for for a long time. So we're just adding one small piece of a larger conversation, and what we're hoping to do is to raise attention um, to issues of accountability and transparency. Uh, we know we know information is is being collected. Um, so there should be some mechanism where it's 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 divulged in a more system systematic uh, manner, and you know there are there 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 are lots of incidents and things going on in the country right now. Um, you know we have the in, on the west coast we have this coroner's inquest into the death of Miles Gray, which you know which, which you noted uh, from mm-hmm. the outset. You know t- sometimes it takes years to to figure out what exactly what's happened. So that was a 2015 incident. We have the the ongoing coroner's inquest into Miles, Gray, Miles Gray's uh, death at the hands of Vancouver police. Uh, and on uh, the East Coast, we have the Mass Casualty Commission calling for um, you know, an overhaul of the RCMP. So what we're contributing uh, is, is kind of a smaller piece to a larger national conversation calling for increased accountability and transparency, and hopefully that we'll, we'll be able to move the needle on this. Well, because frankly, as you mentioned, the way things are right now, nobody's satisfied with the, with with the processes. Uh, you know, these investigations uh, take forever. Uh, they're not usually as forthcoming with that data or information as as either party would like. You know, the families, loved ones of of, of the survivors are, are usually very unhappy with the results of these things. Police are unhappy with it because it takes so long for them to get through too. Uh, and and you know, there's a lot of angst on both sides. So I'm, I'm hoping that the, the research you and your colleagues have done here is going to be a catalyst for some action on this. And, and ultimately, it's got to be government action, I guess. Uh, solicitor generals and others uh, are going to have to be uh, involved in this. Uh, thank you uh, so much for the great work that you doing, Andrew, and thanks for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care Take now. Take care. Andrew Crosby, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo. By the way, that piece uh, with all the data on it is uh, in the conversation.com. You can check that. Uh, just Google that and uh, read it, and uh, you can make your own conclusions from that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of news about uh, the Volkswagen plant today. I guess there's a, a press area scheduled for about 20 minutes from now. The premier is going to be there, and I assume some of the federal folks, too as they, uh, I guess, dot all the I's and cross all the T's on this deal with Volkswagen. Uh, And there's some pushback on this, too, amazingly enough. Uh, Nicole Reese has some details for us. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne says the country will get its investment back in five years from job creation and spillover effects. The plant, operated by Volkswagen's battery company PowerCo, marks the first manufacturing presence in Canada for the world's largest automaker. The contract will include an upfront capital investment of $700 million, 
including production subsidies for every battery the company makes and sells, amounting up to $13 billion over a decade. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Uh, and let's let's talk about some of that. Some people are simply saying this is not money well spent, that that's money that the governments should have been pulling in other initiatives. As a matter of fact, I know when the Premier and, and uh, Minister Champagne and others uh, show up at St. Thomas uh, in just a few minutes, uh, there are some of the folks at the CPAC, they're on striker there too, saying, you know, that's that's our money that you're giving them. Well, that's their perspective on it too. But there's an upside to this, and, and we want to talk about that as well. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, David Adams. David is the President and CEO of Global Automakers of Canada. Uh, David, great to have you back on the show on a very busy day today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill, and I apologize for the background noise, but I, I'm in St. Thomas uh, waiting that announcement, so uh, pleased to talk with you about it today. Absolutely, absolutely, and let's talk about that. I know that a number of people are saying, you know, that this is a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but but I guess the question maybe we should be answering here, too, is uh, what's the cost of not doing it? I mean, you know, we're at a pivotal stage here, not just in Canada, but globally uh, when it comes to the auto industry right now, and the it seems to me anyway, David, that, that this move uh, puts us right in the game. Well, you're absolutely right, Bill, because I think, uh, you know, as I say, there's global competition ongoing right now for this generation of investment in uh, battery uh, technology and also, um, you know, electric light duty vehicle mandates. And, uh, you know, unless we are prepared to participate in the game, then we're not going to land that investment. And I think the, the calculus was made all the more problematic for Canada by the United States uh, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which put uh, significant subsidies and uh, other monies on the table to encourage um, all of this uh, battery production and electric vehicle production to be done in the United States and nowhere else. So I think, um, you know, the federal government at the time was cognizant of, uh, of what the U.S. was doing and made a commitment in the fall economic statement to uh basically look at look towards the budget that was just uh, uh, announced in in March uh, committing to essentially say look we'll uh, we'll do whatever it takes to ensure that we can be competitive to land those investments here in Canada well because historically David uh, this doesn't happen very often does it I mean you know when a, a, a huge global company and especially one that's obviously centered in Europe uh, decides that they want to stake a, a claim here in North America, invariably uh, we we get outbid or out, you know, by the United States. I mean, they they're the ones that bring the subsidies. You know, we'll give you the land, we'll pave the roads for you, we'll do everything, and and we we see that happen. Uh, to, to actually get this and have them coming over here to St. Thomas as opposed to someplace in Alabama uh, is is a real coup for the for the Canadian industry, but for the government as well to actually get into the game like that. Well, it really is. And I think I have to give credit to both the uh, federal government and the provincial government. I think they've they've worked seamlessly together across party lines. Uh, I know throughout the process, Vic Fidelli uh, and uh, Minister Champagne have become uh, great friends. And I think that speaks volumes when they're going into uh, meetings with some of these uh, head office, uh, you know, in jurisdictions outside of North America, where they can show that, look, there's a uh, there's uh, not only cooperation, there's, uh, you know, a, a unity of purpose amongst the federal and provincial governments to uh, to make something happen here in Canada. And I think that that speaks volumes to uh, to the, the companies that our, our governments are going to meet to try and lure some of these very significant investments. 
David, let's talk a little bit about uh, cause and effect here. I mean, as you mentioned, both the sure. Ontario government and, and the feds have done that in the last little while. We've you've seen the ribbon cuttings. We've heard about the announcements. Uh, and it's it's Volkswagen today, but most certainly. But, I mean, uh, they've all jumped into the into the, the waters here. You know, GM and everyone else, is, they're all into EVs, and they've committed to this, uh, which is interesting the, the, that all of them seem to be on the same page and government's on the same page with the industry. And that doesn't happen that often hey, either. But, but not too far from where you are, the, the Cami plant, I think, just rolled out their first uh, electric uh, delivery vehicle yesterday too. So we're not going to have to wait too long to see some results out of this, are we? Well, you know, it, it takes a while to build the, the battery plants and, and whatnot. Sure. And, uh, you know, that, that's reality is that all of these things uh, do take time. But, um, you know, in terms of looking at why we're doing this to reduce emissions, we, we don't have a lot of time. So I think everybody's working as quickly as we can to, uh, you know, to get the plants built and get the, you know, the new uh, zero emission vehicles um, on the road and out to consumers. But, um, no, I think uh, one of the things about this transition that's been, I think, gratifying uh, for folks outside of Southern Ontario is that, um, you know, it's really uh, uh, diversification of the industry across Canada, you know, whether we're talking about anode and cathode production in Quebec or, lithium mines out in Alberta or uh, fuel cells out in BC, you know, all, all sort of uh, provinces across the country are, uh, are participating in the auto sector now. So I think that's a, that's a good news story for everybody. And it certainly makes, I think, politicians job a little bit easier federally when they can say, look, it's not, the automotive industry is not just benefiting Southern Ontario anymore. It's, uh, it's benefiting folks right across Canada. What, what, let's talk about next steps here. I mean, as you say, the battery sure. manufacturing is going to be a while, uh, but it's it's going to pay dividends like this. We know that the, the you know the, the we want to wean off some of those countries that we're not very friendly with that are making these things right now, and I think a lot of people globally mm. uh, are, are, are like minded to that. So, is there an opportunity for this industry to grow extensively uh, because there seems to be such a ready market for it? In other words, we might be one of those go to countries for for some of the other uh, areas that are, are moving towards EVs as well. Well, sure. I think we've seen uh, evidence of that already. Uh, you know, what what uh, is occurring sort of globally right now is is more of a regionalized approach, I think, to markets. So we're seeing, uh, you know, U.S. and its uh, and its allies um, tend to be cooperating more closely together, and uh, uh, you know, that's just sort of the geopolitical situation that we're in. But I think it, you know, all of that um, actually helps Canada. I think in terms of uh, garnering hopefully more of this investment because, uh, you know, it speaks volumes having, um, Volkswagen, you know, one of the largest, uh, vehicle manufacturers in the world make an investment in Canada. But also when, you know, you put on the table the fact that Canada's got, uh, significant source of all of the critical minerals and, and materials and whatnot that are part and parcel of, uh, battery and components that, um, will be part of these vehicles as we move into the new, uh, electrified age of vehicles is, is it fair to say i don't want to get too dramatic about this and, and too full of hyperbole here but that, that this whole move this commitment by the the ontario government and the canadian government uh, towards evs and towards the, the battery production as well uh save the auto industry in this country i mean because i'm just trying to look at some of the recent history here anyway david you know yep. uh, oshawa was was going to be a mothballed uh, brampton uh, you know uh, uh, even oakville uh, you know, th these things all seem to be on life support, and all of a sudden, th there's been new life breathed into the whole industry. 
No, I, I think that's actually a fair comment. I think, um, you know, because of, uh, you know, the, the new, new focus globally on climate change, because of the, uh, uh, the, the transition to uh, electrified vehicles from internal combustion engine vehicles, it has given the automotive industry in Canada, you know, I, I wouldn't say even a, a new lease on life. It's, uh, it, it's actually a, a brand new life that I think holds a lot of opportunity moving forward that, um, you know, if, if we didn't make this, this transition, uh, you know, I think your, your statement is, is fair that it, you know, could foresee a situation where the traditional automotive industry was just sort of on a sort of a slow decline. And and globally, it puts us in pretty good stead, I would imagine, too. I mean, we're being competitive. Uh, what about manufacturing plants, though? The batteries are a big part of that. We absolutely know that. Uh, but getting into vehicle manufacturing with the, the Volkswagens and, and well, even some of the, the Asian car manufacturers, too. Do, uh, now, they some of them have a stake in here already, certainly. But uh, do, can we look forward to, to at least some discussions and explorations about possibly seeing some of those plants locating in Canada now? Well, I think what I will say is that, you know, whereas you wind the clock back, as you say, maybe five or 10 years ago, you know, the thought of any uh, auto manufacturer ever coming to Canada was, uh, you know, was pretty, you know, much percentage of that was was next to next to zero. And I think now uh, with, as you say, the, the battery plants being put in place, those battery plants need to supply <laughs> vehicles, whether those are in Canada or the U.S., um, and just, uh, you know, the, the increased opportunity that, um, that the move to electrification presents, I think it does, uh, it does certainly set the stage, um, for potential, uh, actual vehicle production, electrified vehicle production in Canada again. And we've already seen that occur actually. And, you know, and, uh, you look at what, uh, Ford and Stellantis are doing, uh, GM with a bright drop production, as you mentioned in, uh, in Ingersoll. And, you know, certainly um, Honda and Toyota are, uh, are already producing hybrid vehicles, but, you know, that transition to more fully electrified vehicles will be forthcoming as well. Uh, so it, this is great news in, in so many different ways from an economic standpoint, uh, but it's only going to be as successful as, as the number of people that actually buy these things. I mean, you're going to produce them. It's going to be wonderful, and, and it's going to create jobs in St. Thomas and in Ingersoll and, and you know, Oakville, all those places we just mentioned here, uh, and that's not even talking about the battery production itself, of course. Uh, but let's let's talk about selling cars. I mean, here in Ontario, it's it's a challenge, David. You and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, yes. The percentage of EVs sold in this province is not very high. Uh, they've set very lofty goals for it in a very short timeline. Uh, do you feel comfortable that even if we don't attain them, that we can come close and be in the ballpark with some of those numbers? Because that's that's going to be huge, and I think a very important next step. Well, I think, you know, what I would say is that we need to look at, at this, uh, this thing holistically. And, you know, uh, uh, North American market is essentially an integrated market, uh, certainly from a production basis and increasingly from a sales basis. Um, Canada has always uh, basically adopted the U.S. safety and emission standards, and that's what they've committed to do with the, uh, the proposed uh, greenhouse gas emissions regulations that... Uh, the U.S. released last week. And, you know, having at least an initial look at those regulations, um, it seems that those regulations are very stringent, um, in some cases maybe even more stringent than uh, uh, than what Canada's proposed through its zero-emission vehicle mandate. So, 
You know, problem is, is that, um, you know, uh, we've, we've got a ZEV mandate and, you know, the uh, following what the U.S. is doing. And, you know, I think I would argue, our members would argue that the, the ZEV mandate is redundant and, uh, you know, uh, additional regulatory burden. But, um, you know, as far as consumers are concerned, I think the, the two biggest challenges for consumers right now are the price of vehicles, which is somewhat ameliorated by uh, government rebates but then you know more important concern is just the the infrastructure having the uh, you know the um, assurance that you're going to be able to charge your vehicle where and when you need to do so and um, you know there I think it was actually last week the CAA released a study of uh, EV users and even amongst the EV users that are very satisfied with their vehicles, they still have a you know a latent concern that they uh, they don't the infrastructure isn't there to support their the ongoing use of their vehicle. And you know as we ramp up towards these uh, these targets of uh, you know twenty percent in twenty twenty six that the federal government has under their mandate, and then sixty percent by twenty thirty, and ultimately a hundred percent by twenty thirty five. There's a lot of a uh, lot of things that need to be done, and uh, you know, one of those key things is building out the infrastructure. Yeah, I noticed that. I was mentioning that to my listeners the other day. I mean, you know, in, in the Hamilton Burlington area here, I, yes, there are some charging stations. We've seen them pop up. Uh, the the big mall here, Lime Ridge Mall, just a couple of blocks away from us here. They've got a lot of them. I drove up to Collingwood last weekend, and and there's a lot of them there. Amazingly enough, which I find surprising, but not. I didn't see any on the way. You know, in, in between, uh, and and that's 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 got to be addressed. I, I mean, well, I can yes, make you, you certainly need to pick your road because I uh, I travel between. Toronto and Collingwood quite a bit, and if you're going up the 400, it's it's not too yeah uh, too much of an issue. But if you're you're going any other way, it, it is a bit of an issue. So for sure, the infrastructure is a is an issue that needs to be addressed. Is the province cognizant of that though, Dave? Do they understand that they've got a lot of work to do to 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 hit some of those other areas? And you're right. I mean, the on route stuff is is on the 400. You're you're going to be good there. Uh, but if yeah. you're going up Airport Road or, or any of those other roads up there too, you a lot of small communities. Uh, and yeah. I know, I know what, you, what the manufacturer is going to say. They're listening to me right now and say, "Bill, you can drive that far. You don't need to charge it." Well, that depends on, on how much of a charge you got when you start, I suppose, too. Exactly. But, no, for sure. You, and, you'd, uh, you'd foresee no, a time when that, that that's going to be covered. The province is cognizant of the issue, and they've actually undertaken some work with uh, Ontario Power Generation. They have a partnership with IV charging stations. Uh, so, you know, uh, and there's, there's a, you know, a, a number of other uh, charging station providers that are, are trying to build out the network. And, uh, you know, the federal government has committed funds to uh, both Natural Resources Canada and the uh, Infrastructure Bank of Canada to uh, build out infrastructure. And in the case of uh, the Infrastructure Bank, sort of de-risk that uh, that investment because, um, you know, a level three fast charger can be, you know, around $100,000. And uh, it's always a chicken and egg issue. You know, well, if I put make that investment, will I get any return on it, or how long will it take me to get return a return on it? And that's that's one thing that the uh, the infrastructure bank is assisting with. But you know, our our concern fundamentally is that the number of uh, charging stations that the federal government is projecting that they'll need by 2030 to support the vehicles on the road is completely inadequate. Um, you know, they're looking at a ratio of uh, 24 vehicles per one charging station. And, uh, you know, generally around the world, uh, you look at California or Europe, the, the ratio is anywhere from 7 to 1 or 10 to 1. 
Uh, sounds like they're about to get started down there, and I'm going to let you go they get are. a seat. <laughs> so, uh, David, a busy day, a happy day for an awful lot of people in this industry, and for especially sure. in the St. Thomas community. Thanks for the time today. Uh, enjoy the rest no of the, uh, the event there, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. David Adams, who's the president and CEO of uh, Global Automakers, and uh, they're all at St. Thomas right now for that announcement. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.